Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 13, The Muggle-Born Registration Commission. Ah, Mafalda, said Umbridge, looking at Hermione. Travers sent you, did he? Yes, squeaked Hermione. Good. You'll do perfectly well. Umbridge spoke to the wizard in black and gold. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tech Kyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Thanks to our fabulous patrons for supporting us. We've got Sejal Sutaria, Gillian Raya, Julia Rabosas, Christian Heinz, and Eleanor Maxwell. And a big thanks to our local group in Greensboro, North Carolina, the Greensboro Group. So good. It's run by Chris Cherry, and you can find all information about them and all other local groups on our website, harrypottersacredtext.com. And thank you so, so much to each of you who came to our live shows over the last week, who came for the weekend, and for those of you especially who spent all week with us. It was awesome. And I feel like I've been reading Harry Potter for a long, long time, but in conversation with you, there's always new things that show up. And I just fell in love with our community and this text all over again. Thank you, everyone. Casper, it's your turn to tell a story through the theme of arrogance. So I'm guessing it's an autobiographical one this week. (laughs) If this story is about me, I'm going to be mad. It's not about you. And surprisingly, it's also not about me. It's about my favorite football team, Leeds United. 
Two years ago, after many years in the doldrums, we had a new manager. And this wasn't just a new manager. This was like a class A world famous manager who'd, who'd led Argentina, his home country. He'd led Chile to incredible success. His name is Marcelo Bielsa, and he is known as El Loco, the crazy, because he has such unorthodox methods in coaching. He's obsessive. He watches every video of every game ever played by every player. He gets into details in the ways that, like, you just couldn't imagine. And so it was a real stretch for my team, which is, you know, was in the second division of the English football leagues, to have this kind of world-class manager. And everyone was a little bit weary. Is he going to understand the English game? You know, the way we play football is so different. Sure. And he shows up. And the first thing he does with this squad of footballers who, you know, like most professional athletes, certainly footballers in the UK, earn a lot of money, have a lot of status, you know, drive beautiful cars. And the first thing that Marcelo Bielsa did with his players when they got to the training ground was he got them to walk around the perimeter of the field and pick up the trash. And it was so surprising. Like that is, that's not normal coaching methods. But what he wanted to do was to help the players understand this isn't just a job for you. This isn't just like you getting to shine your light. It's an honor that you get to play for people who spend their weekdays, weeknights, who knows, working really hard jobs and they come with their precious money to pay for a ticket to come and see you play. It is an honor for you to play for them. And what he was doing with that was totally kind of undoing this story of arrogance and superiority that's, I think, bred into these players for better or worse. And he wanted to humble them in a way that was authentic and meaningful and true. And so that they would love one another, they would love the club, they would, you know, and they would love the fans. And what's so beautiful is that over the last two years, that has worked and we were just crowned champions of the league and we're going back up for the first time in 16 years. And I, I just love this so much because it helped these players come together. And, and I think the way in which arrogance shows up for me is that it often makes me feel better than other people and it separates me from other people. And that's one of the core questions we've been asking about Harry from the beginning of book one is like, how can he be with people? How can he be healthy by himself? And so I'm, I'm really excited to see how arrogance shows up in this chapter. I love that these people are irreplaceable. There is no one else who can do their jobs. And there's an acknowledgement that that can cause arrogance. And therefore, it is more important for them than ever to do the work that any of us could do. Any of us can pick up trash. And yeah, I also I love that about Harry in this chapter, especially at the end when, yes, he's he's the boy who lived. He's undesirable, number one. But he is not freeing all of those people who are under attack with the power of any of that. He literally just punches someone in the face, right? Like that is something that many of us could do. It's a combination of his arrogance and humility that gets him to do this thing. Ooh, yeah, I love that. Okay, well, but let's remind everyone what happens in this chapter because it's like a car chase race scene, but in human wizard form. It's pretty exciting. I love this chapter. I usually hate action chapters, but this one's so good. And Umbridge is back. We know how you love Umbridge. Uh, that's hate speech. You could go to Azkaban for that. Okay, count me in. All right, 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. 
So they're at the ministry. Harry is like, I'm going to go try to get the locket. And he goes up to Umbridge's floor and there's some really awkward elevator time. And he's like, maybe the locket is in here. Accio locket. And everybody is making a lot of pamphlets and talking a lot of beep about Umbridge. And (laughs) Moody's eye is there and they go down to the hearing and he's like, Hermione, she's wearing the locket. And so they do a big explosion and they grab the locket and Hermione is like, I'm going to create a second locket. And um, and then they help all of the. I ran out of time. <laughs> Can you pick up that sentence? I've totally got you. Yeah, count me in. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. So there's a Muggleborn registration commission, and there's lots of people down in the dungeons who are being investigated to see if they were Muggleborn. And you know, we've heard that other people are, like faking the family trees, but like a lot of these people are actually wizardborn, and so it's just being mean. Um, and there's a slow motion when the locket like falls from Umbridge's neck, and you just see like it swing out, and she's protecting herself from the Dementors because she's got a Patronus. And then Harry and Hermione like take the people and they run upstairs, and they're boom, 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 chase, chase, chase. Out they go, and Ron is there, and they also see Arthur Weasley in the elevator. I said the elevator thing, so it's interesting that you decided to go over time to just repeat what I said. I I felt it important to name some of the exciting characters who only get cameo moments in this chapter, but who really have a star turn and I think should be nominated for an Oscar. Well, let's start with Arthur Weasley, right? Like, let's let's start with him. He attacks Harry, who looks like this bad wizard. And like really goes after him in a way that made me curious about what the difference is between arrogant and brave Mm. because he's arrogant, right? He's like, I am a pureblood and everybody knows it. And that's so public that to some extent I'm protected. But that's also just him taking advantage of his privilege and like really putting his privilege on the line. So I'm wondering what you made of that. Was it an arrogant moment or was it just like brave? It's really interesting because Harry as Runcorn says, you know, they're following you, they're tracing you. And Arthur says, is that a threat, Runcorn? And honestly, to me, what I read it as was like, it was a hot-headed, foolish response. Like, he's not standing up to power in a sense of like, it's not public. You know, no one is really witnessing this, like, except for his own dignity, which is totally fair. There's not really any kind of bigger purpose, I think, that's being served here. So the thing that's so interesting to me is that we can see, as you mentioned, like outside Umbridge's office, there are so many workers at the ministry who do not like what is happening. And so I wish Arthur was like organizing them into some sort of meeting rather than just like telling Runcorn to disappear (laughs) nicely. I really disagree. So I I think both are good and necessary. And I would say that whether or not he's choosing, which I think that point of yours is really compelling. Like, I'm not sure that he's making a conscious choice. I think that he's just like, ah, I hate this, right? (laughs) Also because he's just had Percy next to him in the elevator, right? And Harry wonders, is that one of the reasons why he's so aggravated? Totally. But I think being a pebble in a shoe makes an Mm. army move slower. Like not everybody has the capacity to organize and sometimes the oppression is so complete. And I just wonder about my ever-present question. Like if more Nazis stood up to their officers and were like, I don't want to kill people all the time, right? 
sort of famously within the Nazi party, if you really didn't want to kill people, they would let you not. Like they would try to cheerlead you into being like, it's not that bad. You're doing the right thing. But if you were like, I don't want to, it makes me sick. They would not make you. And so I just like wonder, right? Like if more people were Arthur Weasley and were just like, this sucks. I hate it. I do think that those things chip away at us. And I am not sure it would work on Runcorn and like maybe it would really backfire on Arthur in a non-strategic way. Like maybe he should be saving this and being more strategic. But I just think resistance in any form is resistance. No, I'm I'm compelled by what you're saying. I guess that the question is like, is it arrogance that we're seeing? I think he does feel like he's better than Runcorn because he has his principles. Oh, I agree. And And part of me wants to say that's not arrogant it's true <laughs> but maybe maybe that reveals my own arrogance <laughs> i guess it depends on our definition of arrogance right if the definition of arrogance is someone who thinks that they're better but isn't then arthur in our opinion is not arrogant right cuz he thinks that he's better and we think he is <laughs> but i also think that arrogance has another component which is you think you're better and you're not, and you treat other people as if you think you're better. Right. And like, I think that arrogance doesn't exist in a vacuum. You're not walking around your own house privately, arrogantly. Arrogance has to have an audience in order for it to matter. And so I think Runcorn, well, it's Harry, but I think Runcorn would experience this moment as completely arrogant and misguided and stepping out of line. But I experience it as like Arthur being hot and like standing up to Runcorn, who's like eight feet taller than him and being like, I'm mad at my son and I'm mad at you. (laughs) Amen. Yeah. and, And in some ways, we've got the perfect mirror to that moment in the elevator right at the end of the chapter when Harry as Runcorn in an atrium full of people who are already alerted to the fact that others are escaping just says in full voice, stop, and assumes the authority to tell other people what to do, even though he doesn't have it. And so exactly what you were saying, it's not just about you thinking that you're better than someone else or or that you're the best at something, but it's then having, like doing actions that have an impact on the people around you. Now, in this case, Harry is using that kind of perceived arrogance of of how he thinks Runcorn would act and the the status and the the respect that that other people might have of him. He's using that to like help these people escape. But I I, th- I think it's a it's a really good example of a totally different power differential between those two moments. And I think that this is a moment where Runcorn, right, like Harry as Runcorn, like he's a white, tall man in a uniform like robe. And I think that if it was a black woman, there would be a like she's being shrill. She's just an angry black woman. We can right. ignore it. Which is another way that I think that arrogance is in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, I think that minorities and people of color are seen as arrogant more quickly when they are simply being experts, right? And like saying things that are true. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. I have a question for you. One of the other places where I thought there might be arrogance, and I wonder if this gets to us trying to figure out this like line between humility and arrogance, is that when Harry tries to find Umbridge's office, which he does, he throws this like little stink bomb-esque thing, which distracts everyone, and he just opens the door to her office. It's not locked. Like there's no magic involved. He just turns the door handle and walks in. And part of me was like, wow, that's really trusting, right? Like maybe Umbridge feels so comfortable. Maybe she's like, that. I've nothing to hide, right? Everything's run by Voldemort anyway. I, or, or is she like, no one would dare to walk into my office, right? Like I don't even need to lock it. Th- that there's an arrogance that like no one can touch her, right? Because she's so powerful. I'm really confused. Like what do you see in that moment? I also see that she has Moody's magical eye and I like don't know her relationship with it. So I wonder if it works as a camera on her door that she would like see anybody who came in. But then I also see with Umbridge her simultaneous arrogance as like queen of this fiefdom with her like need to lie, right? She Mm. later in the chapter is saying that the locket is like part of her family. So I think that there is this mix of arrogance and fear Mm. in her. And I think I'm, I'm dodging your specific question about the door, but I think that it's a lot of things, right? It's the eye. It's no one would dare. I wonder if she's afraid she would look weak or like she had something to hide if she locked it in front of all of those people who are in front of her office. I think that that's one of the things about accumulating a lot of power is that you become more and more afraid of losing it. 
Yeah, the thing that really struck me with the door, especially, was that we've seen her with an office before and the way in which she was so intense about no one coming in when she had an office at Hogwarts. And so there's just something remarkably different about this office. Even though it looks the same, there's still doilies and cats and pink and fluffy. So I, I'm really compelled both by the the idea that the eye actually can look backwards. We know that it can, right? Moody could always look through the back of his head. So she does have a security system. So, so maybe she's just hedging her bets and she's like, I want to appear friendly and open, but I'm actually watching you. <laughs> well, I also just wonder, right? Like a new person arrives who hasn't seen that she's left. It's like a Stasi thing. Like you never know when you're being watched. And you also don't know if the person next to you who's complaining about the job is actually a mole. This amount of power creates such distrust amongst people I do think that that is one of the big problems with arrogance is that it becomes a form of oppression, right? Like I have worked for really arrogant bosses who are just, I mean, I remember one of my bosses actually said to me, he swore, he went, bad word, Vanessa, you really bad worded up. And in the same sentence, he said, I never swear, He had so much more arrogance and power than me in that moment that he could completely contradict himself as he was scolding me for something that wasn't my fault. And like the arrogance came in. It didn't even occur to him that it was a mutual mistake. It didn't even occur to him that he was like completely undermining his own power by being a hypocrite right in front of me. Right. So in that moment, I was silent and yet had no respect for him. And at the end of the day, it didn't matter that I had no respect for him because he had all the power, right? And like I needed the job. I really like that point, Vanessa, that arrogance can actually block us from seeing things that might be in plain sight. I mean, the most obvious example is like, Harry Potter is literally in the ministry, right? Like there's a lot of activity that would be suspicious if you were looking for suspicious activity. But because there's this sense like, oh, the ministry is in charge, Voldemort has total control, he wouldn't dare show up here. There's actually very little effective security or kind of sleuthing to catch the trio. And so I'm really compelled that arrogance can actually stop us from seeing things that are happening right in front of us. You know, it's interesting, back in this chapter, we get to spend some time with Umbridge again. And we know what a vile, you know, torturous, character she is and we've seen her at her most cruel and 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 violent and it's so interesting to me how she interacts with the locket especially you know she knows or at least we we assume she knows that this is a slytherin object but what she tells everyone else is that it's an old family heirloom of the selwyns right another name with an s And so she's navigating two things here. One, she clearly wants this Slytherin family heirloom and feels connected to it. And as a Slytherin maybe feels like somehow she can be an inheritor of Salazar's in in, in some way. But at the same time, she's not claiming it publicly. You know, I'm curious, like, why is she hesitant about that? Does she not want to kind of overreach her station? Does her pleasure come in private? She doesn't need it to be public. There's some complexity here in her that I, I I hadn't really seen before, which made me interested in Umbridge. I also think she knows that it's like wartime ill-gotten gains, right? Like mm. she stole it from Mundungus. 
She has no idea where Mundungus got it from. I think that maybe the Black family would come forward or Voldemort would come forward and say it's mine. Ah. So I think she just wants to protect it. And to some extent, it shows her simultaneous allegiance to the cause and lack of allegiance to the cause. Because if she was truly into it, she would turn it in to Voldemort. Yes, Vanessa, this is freaking crucial because it points exactly to what we talked about in the last episode, where we see individuals using this new system of Voldemort being in charge to get ahead for their own selves. And and she may agree with a lot of it, but she is not actually in all the way, right? Like she's the best example of a an ordered evil, you know, on that matrix. <laughs> <laughs> it's not chaotic evil, but it's ordered evil. Like she's using the weapons of the state to get herself ahead. That totally makes sense to me. One other thing on Umbridge is just how it strikes me that her arrogance doesn't allow for truth. As soon as you've been brought into this courtroom, you're guilty. And so even the way she phrases this question, which questions are supposed to be based in humility, right? It's, I don't know the answer. Can you please tell me? But she says, from whom did you take that wand? To the woman who's like, I got it from Ollivander when I was 11. Like, I didn't take it. Right. It picked me. I, I, did, I didn't even take it. Yeah. Right. It picked me and then I paid for it. And like it was this consensual relationship as a human can have with like an inanimate object. And Umbridge's arrogance means that she'll never hear that story. She will never hear the truth. Not that the truth will always set you free because I don't think that society is set up that way. But truth matters. And she just is so arrogant. She is just bowling through this thing in a way that she will never get at those truths. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And she's not interested in the truth because it would disrupt the worldview that she has. And I think that's important, you know, for all of us is that it's easy to, you know, read a certain kind of set of news stories or to seek out a certain set of narratives because they fit within the way that we like to see the world, um, often because it doesn't implicate us in some way. And to kind of build the discipline of humility and question asking, I think is a really beautiful invitation, Vanessa. So Casper, in a typical Vanessa move, my final moment is one that I just think we should talk about. And I'm like, can you help me make it about arrogance, please? (laughs) Harry comes out and is like, all of you are free. It's ministry policy. Here's what you should do. You should get the heck out of town. And this is beautiful and brave. And also it's only the people who are there that day tomorrow's people are actually probably going to be treated worse because of this moment. And I think every person matters, right? Like, I think it matters incredibly that he frees all these people. And you can't fault Harry. Like, he's also trying to fight the system. And I do think of Harry as one of the people who I admire the most as far as people who really resisted during the Holocaust is Raoul Wallenberg, who not only was using his diplomatic privilege in Sweden to like try to broker deals to, you know, save as many people as possible, but then he would go to the train stations at the deportations and hand out Swedish passports, right? So like he was working on this macro level and then like putting himself at risk and being like, and you are saved and you are saved and you are saved. And he saved my uncle that way. Like he literally handed my uncle a Swedish passport. But the other part of me is like, it's so cruel 
because he only had a certain number of Swedish passports. And like the person next to my uncle had to get on the train. It just breaks my heart that 20 more people are coming in tomorrow and it might be worse than ever because of this thing that happened. And I, I just hate the randomness of it. And everybody is doing everything right, right? Like Harry is Raul mm. Wallenberg. He's doing everything right. He's saving every single person he can and he's fighting it on a systems level. And I hate it. I hate it. Wow. First of all, I, I didn't know about Raul Wallenberg. I'm so grateful to know just a piece of his story. But, but I'm also just struck with like, if not random, then what? There is no good way of doing it because the situation is inherently cruel. Right. And it would be nothing but arrogant, but to try to make a decision. Exactly. I think that's exactly, that's the thing that, that I'm coming away with, which is that there is no right way to do it. And so randomness is honestly the only way that anyone could live with it properly. And even then it's hard to live with. Just these historical parallels that you draw just add so much weight to the chapter. I mean, we haven't even talked about the Dementors, right? Like the way in which there's this a sense of drowning in sadness, right? We know that description of the Dementors and that the Inquisitors are protected by that prowling cat Patronus, but everyone else is kind of sucked into this hole of, of desperation and despair. I'm just seeing all of these parallels that add so much weight to this chapter in a way that, that wasn't even there when I was reading it. That's really powerful. Yeah, and you know, that Patronus really reminded me of the ways that police officers have helmets and like military grade shields and right like they show up with these patroni where protesters are scared and horrified and being terrorized but police officers are like well I'm safe I have a shield and a helmet and a gun and tear gas and rubber bullets and real bullets and right like and it gives you a false arrogance. It's like, I have more physical power, so I must be right. I feel like is the way that our brain does that. Like our brain skips from power to correct. I mean, and I think we see this on social media, right? When we are anonymous and therefore cruel online, it's sort of the same as being a police officer with a helmet and a shield, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're protected from the consequences. I mean, like... How often does a police officer get charged with the crime? Nearly never. So Vanessa, we're going to continue with Chavruta, which is our spiritual practice for this episode. And as you'll remember, I'm going to ask a question of the text and I'm going to try and answer it, but then you're going to help me out. So as Harry and Hermione are trying to escape from the courtroom, Harry casts a Patronus and he needs as many Patroni as possible, Patronuses as possible. And so he tells Hermione, listen, cast a Patronus, we, we need you. And Hermione's first attempt fails. And that might be because she's, you know, shaken, she's not concentrating. But I want to suggest that I think the first memory that she conjures up is not strong enough to cast a Patronus. But then when she does it again, it is. And so my question to you is, what is the first memory and then the second memory that she's thinking of as she tries to cast that Patronus? And my answer is this. I think the first memory is the Yule Ball with Crumb, which she looks back on as like a real high point I hope all of us have a moment, maybe especially when we were younger, when we we're like, I was really 
stinking hot. I walked into that room and I ran the show and I've got this great famous Quidditch player and he's all into me, right? Like I can imagine that being a really happy memory for her, but it, it maybe it feels a little thin and it doesn't have the depth that she's drawing from. And Ron ruined it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Most importantly. But the second memory I think she's drawing on is her parents. I think she's remembering something simple and sweet, you know, sitting around the dinner table, maybe an in-joke that they had in the car on a holiday in Spain one year, you know, just those little moments. And of course, her parents are now far away in Australia, probably. But I'm curious what you think, like what what is going on with these kind of moments of casting the Patronus and, and what is she remembering? Yeah, which makes me want to reflect on something I've never reflected on before, which is why does a happy memory help you cast a Patronus, right? Mm. And if dementors are a metaphor for depression, the idea that lying in bed and thinking about moments, you don't want to think about moments where you felt hot. You want to think about moments that will remind you that there's something to live for and that you have had moments where you were glad you were alive, even though right now the Dementors are sucking that out of you. And, you know, Hermione's moment with Crumb was about like feeling hot and was about feeling like she's hurting Ron a little bit. And she's like, you don't know me, but it (laughs) isn't a moment that she would look back on and be like, I am glad to be alive. And so I actually wonder if with Hermione, it's a a memory of an act of service where she was like, Mm. I made the world better today. And one of Ariana's favorite moments in the text is when Hermione brings toast to Harry, when Harry feels completely isolated and everybody's rooting for Cedric Diggory and she knows that he isn't going to want to see anybody. She brings him toast. And I mean, like, you know, it's an offering of communion of take this bread and be reminded of the fact that you have connection in the world. And so I just wonder if for Hermione, she's like, oh, I have a reason to live. I have more work to do to make this world better. And this was a moment that I could make someone who I love feel better. Yeah. Acts acts of service are one of the best ways to feel connected to other people. That's when we feel of use and of, of service. Exactly. And I think that Moments where you feel loved by your parents can make you feel safe, which can help you pass depression and pass these moments of despair, too. But I think that one of the stories we should be telling ourselves in this moment are I matter and it it matters that I'm alive and it matters that I get through this difficult moment. So that's my only answer that maybe she's remembering a time in which she was a help. I'm just thinking about all the ways in which Hermione has been of service, right? Back to Buckbeak. Uh, I'm I'm thinking about, of course, the house elves, right? That longstanding commitment she has and the way in which she's seen both Dobby and now Creature flourish. I mean, Creature isn't necessarily free, right? He lives in that kind of unsure category between the two. We don't know. But yeah, she's seen the impact of her commitment and the service she has offered to the people and, and magical creatures around her, which is a testament to Hermione. Ugh, I would love if the moment she was thinking of was watching Hagrid be with Buckbeak or watching Sirius fly away with Buckbeak. If she's like, I did it. That freaking time turner was the worst decision I ever made. But also (laughs) I saved an animal and a wrongfully convicted man with it. I love that, Casper. I love if she is like, (laughs) I did it. And out comes the otter. Yeah. Yeah. I have a follow-up question for you, though. 
Why is Hermione bad at this? Well, one thing I will say is that we can't all be great at everything. And so even the best of us are going to struggle with something. So I I don't even want to see it as an imperfection because she's perfect in every way. But having said that, part of her talent and part of her commitment to learning, it comes from a perfectionism, right? She's always in the library. She always wants to master something. And I think in that sense, that perfectionism comes from a, maybe a deeper sense of insecurity that maybe she isn't good enough or she's going to get it wrong. And this spell To me, it seems much less about necessarily technical excellence, and it's more about I don't even want to say a sense of self-belief, but but there's there's something in that perfectionism that I think that gets in the way of of a good enough Patronus. I I, I don't know. I'm not even convincing myself fully here, but well, what I find compelling about the idea of perfectionism getting in the way is that she's messed up on it once before, and then you, she ah. just gets in her head. Right. Yes. And if you're a perfectionist and you're the first person who can do Wingardium Leviosa and you're the first person who can cast a stunning spell and you're just always sort of the best at it. And then once you can't do it, like she couldn't do ridiculous with the bugger. And like, I just think that there's something about these joy spells that she's just gotten in her head that she can't do. Which almost like speaks to the downside of arrogance, right? If you tell yourself a story where like, I'm good at everything, you don't actually see the reason I'm good at things is because I practice and I get better. And it's okay that I fail sometimes because other times I'm good. We're not telling ourselves more nuanced stories. We're telling ourselves I'm good at these things and I'm bad at this one. And it creates this narrative that I think can chip away at our identities. Well, absolutely. Or or we kind of build a a false identity around a narrative, right? Like if you were always really good at swimming or you were always really good at math, then it's very easy to kind of follow that praise and encouragement all the way into, you know, maybe you you go to college, maybe you end up in a career, maybe 10 years later, you're like, why am I doing this? I'm not passionate about this. It doesn't make me happy. And not, you know, every job has to be some great passionate love affair, but Nonetheless, that that sense that we might be living someone else's dream. I, I always think about Michelle Obama's story where she talks about, you know, suddenly I was in a corporate legal office and I was like, I'm living someone else's vision for my life. I'm not becoming the person I want to be. Now, I don't want to put that onto Hermione because I think Hermione is passionate about magic and about the the skills involved with it. But I've always read the final chapter of book seven. Like, I want her to be headmistress of Hogwarts. I want her to be like head of the ministry. And maybe now through this conversation, I shouldn't want her to be something. Maybe she's like, you know what? I'm actually really passionate about literature and I'm going to write children's books. And she's maybe free of this narrative of being the brightest witch of her generation. And she can do what she wants to do, whether she's amazing at magic or not. Ugh, thank you, Casper. I love Havruta. That was fun. I love finding new questions in the text that I wouldn't have gone looking for otherwise. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's time for this week's voicemail, and we're going to hear from Chelsea. Hey, Casper and Vanessa. So I'm a latecomer to this beautiful project, but I'm loving every second of it. I just recently listened to your episode on boundaries in book five, and Casper told a story about his high school German teacher who he sort of resented a little bit for not coming out to the class. And to be honest, I was a little taken aback at what harsh critics you both were, even implying that his omission was cowardly. And maybe it was, I don't really know, but as a queer high school teacher myself, I've really been struggling with this for the past couple of days. Teachers walk a really fine line and we often say, be the teacher you needed when you were in high school. And we're trying, but life doesn't always make it easy. There are many aspects of who I am that I don't share with my students because as my colleagues and I know all too well, our jobs aren't always a safe place to be who we are. We've learned that safe places aren't always as safe as we thought. Even the Harry Potter community has been grappling with this recently in response to Joe Rowling's hateful tweets. It's made me reflect on so many characters in the series. Snape, who could have had a way better relationship with Harry if he was just a little bit more honest about his past. Dumbledore, who could have provided a kid like Harry or Neville so much solace if he had just told us a little bit about his own fraught relationship with his families. I think about Remus Lupin, who, despite being the best defense against the dark arts teacher Hogwarts had ever seen, found little support from admin when his own identity was revealed, and he had to leave the one stable job he'd had in years. So I get it. I get why Casper's German teacher felt like he couldn't cross that boundary that day, and I also get why Casper felt so betrayed by it. We live in a world that doesn't always make it safe or easy to build the connections that nourish us most, and that's really unfair. So I just want to end with a blessing for all the people out there struggling to break down the barriers between who they are and who they want to be. I know this has given me a lot to think about when it comes to my role as a teacher, which is why I also want to extend a blessing to all the Caspers out there in classrooms all over the world. We see you, we love you, and we're sorry for the times that we fall short. Thank you both so much for creating a space where we can break boundaries together. 
Bye. Oh, Chelsea, I hear you. I totally get that. Clearly, when it's a story in our own life, it's harder to be empathetic to someone else. Um, And I really appreciate you pointing me, especially to, you know, just consider my German teacher's situation, especially, you know, this is some decades ago now. And I really appreciate the navigation that you have to do as a teacher in your own context. I think the, the only solution is blessings for everyone. Yeah, you're right. Casper, we now get to bless someone from the pages of this book. And I'm wondering who it is that you want to bless. I want to bless Mrs. Catamole. You know, we haven't really talked at all about this major dramatic situation that's happening between her and her husband, Reg, and Ron, who's pretending to be Reg. And I mean, she is just going from one horrific experience to another. I mean, first of all, her husband doesn't show up for this trial that she's in. Then she thinks he shows up and then he's like super weird. And he's like, I'm not your husband, <laughs> you know, like being gaslit. Like, and then her real husband shows up and she's like, what on earth is going on? She's just living her life, you know, and is suddenly being pulled into this very, very dramatic and frightening experience. And she says, Reg, I think we had better go, you know, like that they're telling us that we should leave. And I just, I hope she does. I hope she gets to safety. You know, they have children. I can't imagine how disruptive everything would be, but just a blessing for Mrs. Catamull, who's caught up in a story that's much bigger than her, but which has big implications for her life. And, you know, she didn't choose this, but but here she is. How about you, Vanessa? I want to bless Molly Weasley. Mm. First of all, her kids are in danger. Mr. Weasley's in an elevator with Ron and he doesn't get to go home and be like, Molly, I saw Ron today. He's out there doing good work and he's safe, right? Like that missed opportunity and how much that would mean to her. I was wondering about Arthur and whether he goes home and tells her, I saw Percy again today. And if she just wants to pull her hair out and is like, will you freaking talk to him? And so I just want to offer a blessing for her because she can't control everything. I wonder even if Arthur tells her when he sees Percy. She doesn't have information that would make her feel so much better. And we know she will lose a child in this war. And my heart breaks for her. My heart just breaks for her. So even though she's not in this chapter, I want to say that we're thinking of you, Molly. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and join our Facebook common room to chat with other listeners about this episode. Or you can come and join the community of the coolest people in the whole wide world, which are the people supporting us on Patreon. You can, as always, leave Casper a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. (laughs) And we are launching a new Harry Potter and Sacred Text class, and the classes are limited to 200 people because we are going to make sure that we have time for breakout groups, and it'll be more intimate and more Go to harrypottersacredtext.com and it's a class with me, but I'm going to make Casper come at least once. Next week, we'll be reading chapter 14, The Thief, through the theme of belonging. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. And our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Boll. And we are distributed by Acast. Thanks to Chelsea for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephen Purcell. I'm going to go put on my Leeds shirt. Not only is it not necessary, but it's so boring. <gasps> I feel very attacked. <laughs> like no one cares. <laughs> it would be like me doing a story about Hugh Jackman's Oscar nomination. I mean, we can get into that.